Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The U.S. foster care system is broken. The number of licensed foster homes dropped last year in more than half of states. And in some states, the drop was profound. For example, South Carolina lost more than 61% of its available foster homes last year. Meanwhile, more children continue to enter the child welfare system. The shortages have forced several states to seek temporary shelter for children wherever it's available, including casino hotels, emergency rooms, retirement homes, and even former juvenile detention facilities. The COVID pandemic pushed the crisis out into the open, but it has been brewing for years. Jewel Harris is 24 and lives in Ohio. She's been in and out of the foster care system since she was three years old. She aged out. Enrique lives in California. He went into foster care when he was 11. He's 25 now and has also aged out of the system. Glenda Wright is in Kentucky. She's 27 and first entered the foster care system when she was two. She often received kinship care from her grandmother, but her grandmother died when Glenda was 13. She's also aged out of the system. This is what they experienced. I was probably like 13 years old, and we'd spend hours upon hours inside of the actual Children's Services Agency. So in that lobby, you'd see a bunch of different kids with a bunch of trash bags just sitting there and waiting and waiting. Then you get out of school and it's like, oh, no, you can't go back there. You have some the caseworkers there to pick you up and you have to go to the agency. They have completely packed up all your things in trash bags. You don't know what they left, what they missed or what they decided to disregard or discard. And that in itself was very demeaning. You lose your sense of autonomy. You feel like you don't have any control over your life. There was times where I've had to stay at the command post, which is in downtown L.A. And it's like a big DCFS office, kind of, where when you're unhoused, they place you there. There have been times where I got removed from one group home and I had to stay at the command post basically for almost a week until they found me something new. I got hospitalized one time and they made me stay in the hospital for almost a week longer than I should have been just because they were trying to find me a new placement as well. A lot of times they move people around and they don't have a set plan. So they'll move you out of your house, but they don't even have a home for you to go to. It's inhumane, to be honest, um, especially for a kid. You know, it's very traumatic. 
my grandmother just passed away. That's a significant loss. It's basically like my mother just passed away. And instead of thinking therapeutically like, okay, these kids are always together. They need to stay together and they need to be in a home-like environment as they kind of try to work through their grandmother dying. They decided that it would be better to put us in institutional care. So what that looked like was me and my brothers getting split up by gender. So again, I just had my grandmother's death. It's the same night. I remember being in the room and laying on a bunk bed and just crying my eyes out. And I didn't have my built-in support of my siblings. And so we were in that place for a, too long, first off, but really long. I don't really remember exactly how long, but to me in that moment, it felt like months, it felt like years. I know what's best for me, even if my age says that I don't. And so really just implementing youth feedback, both post-system and pre-system is really important. That was Jewel Harris of Ohio, Enrique in California, and Glenda Wright in Kentucky. Sarita Cox is the CEO and co-founder of the nonprofit iFoster, the largest national virtual network for children, families, and organizations within the foster care system. And she joins us today from Lake Tahoe, California. Sarita, welcome to On Point. Hello, Magna, and thank you so much for having me. So we've only recently, I, I think more broadly, have heard of this sort of precipitous crisis in the foster care system. But as we just heard from uh, from Enrique, Glenda, and Jewel, this has been going on for years. I mean, would you describe the current shortage of uh, foster homes as different or more acute than it was before? Uh, I think it's happening nationwide at a level that we haven't seen necessarily before all at once due to COVID. So COVID kind of put a spotlight on it. But this situation has been going on for a long, long time. Uh, you know, Jewel, Glenda, and Enrique, you mentioned their ages now, and they're mm -hmm. talking about a decade ago and what they were going through. Uh, so yes, this has been a problem for a long time that is just seems to have come to this massive head that the public is becoming aware of because of COVID. Okay. I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about um, the lengths that several different states um, and uh, social service agencies in those states have had to go to in order to find places for children to stay who are in the foster system. Um, I mean, for example, in California, where you are, there are stories of children who have had to um, sleep in, uh, in cots in former juvenile detention centers. Do you know more about that? Uh, that's correct. That's in Sacramento. Uh, it was investigated. Uh, and uh, it, the bottom line is there, there were and there are no foster homes or kinship homes available for these children. And so it is the only facility they could find. Uh, it would be that or maybe office space uh, at uh, Department of Children and Family Services headquarters, uh, you, or it would be homelessness. 
that that is the crisis. Uh, they, there are no bets. Mm. Homelessness, even though these children were are supposed to be in the care of the state. Correct. And homelessness does occur. Uh, I believe Enrique talked about that, uh, that uh, even while you're in care, it does not mean that um, that you're guaranteed to be with a family, to be in a safe placement. Okay. There are a couple of other, other examples I want to go through just to really drive this point home about how dire the situation is. In Nevada, um, children have been housed in casino hotel rooms where state workers um, watched over them while they were waiting for foster beds uh, to open. I'm sure you're aware of that as well, right? Exactly. Uh, You you know, um, at least it was a hotel. Uh, mm-hmm. And <laughs> you have to see the grim humor in it. Uh, but yes, uh, that that's happening there too, especially in the more rural areas. There aren't foster families. There aren't kinship families in which to place them. Yeah. And I'm seeing here that in the, in the Nevada case, um, uh, KFF News or formerly Kaiser Health News has reported that in one Nevada county, there were in Elko County, Nevada, it's a, a rural but large, geographically large county. There were 12 foster beds in the entire county, just 12, uh, and they were all full. And then in um, in North Carolina, there were 11,000 youth in the North Carolina foster care system. Just prior to the pandemic, there were 7,100 licensed foster families in the state. But by 2022, the number had dropped below 5,500, and that led to a a number of children having to stay, for example, another thing we've been reading about, for and Enrique mentioned this, for extended stays in the hospital, um, not because they needed medical care anymore, but simply because there was no place for them to go, Sarita. Yes, that that does happen, uh, and and let's be clear, it's not necessarily uh, a hospital uh, for physical care. In many times, it's a mental health facility, and uh, you can imagine the trauma as a young person or a child being held in a medical health institution or a mental health institution uh, when you really don't need to be there. Uh, I so. See. Uh, this is this is a massive issue, and you can just imagine the trauma that is impacting on these children. They're already traumatized. They've been removed from their family due to abuse or violence or neglect. They were removed for a reason, and they're being further re-traumatized by not being placed in a safe uh, family environment. Uh, uh, for whatever temporary time they're going to be in foster care. Uh, instead, they're, they're, they're in offices, they're in casinos, they're in uh, defunct juvenile halls that aren't even being used as juvenile halls anymore. Uh, it, you know, it, it's, it, it, it is a crisis. 
Mm-hmm. Well, um, the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services responded to a, an inquiry from Queen City News, who did some local reporting on this. And uh, the NCDHHS said that they were aware of at least 50 children statewide who were waiting in emergency departments, like living in the emergency room, um, because of the fact that uh, those particular children were waiting to be admitted into um, either a setting that could address their their complex um, needs, their you know uh, mental health needs, that would be inpatient or residential, or a foster home that was uh, supported by behavioral health and other services in the community. And those foster homes simply did not exist in adequate numbers. So... When we come back, Sarita, I want to talk a little bit more uh, about the impact that COVID has had on this already ongoing problem um, and really what the dynamics are that are causing this, this crisis. So today we're talking about a crisis in the U.S. foster care system and the dramatic drop in uh, foster homes for children to go to. And we'll have more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're taking a look at a problem that the COVID pandemic helped to burst out into the open. And that is the dramatic drop in foster homes, in licensed foster homes in more than half of U.S. states. Uh, A drop that means that children in many of these states are bounced from home to home or sometimes housed in inappropriate situations. And we're trying to understand what's uh, driving not only the recent drop in foster homes, but the longer-term challenges that state uh, child services departments are facing. And Sarita Cox joins us today. She's CEO of the nonprofit iFoster, which is the largest virtual network for children, families, and organizations in the foster care system. Now, Sarita, uh, the fact that COVID made a bad situation worse uh, is unfortunately a, a familiar refrain in so many aspects uh, of American life. So I want to just go back to what the bad situation even was before COVID, because I'm reading that there's sort of a multifaceted set of problems here. And the first of all is that 
uh, for quite some time, states have had a very difficult time in retaining new foster families. Can you tell me um, why that is and, and um, how, how bad the retention rate is? Uh, yes. So uh, the retention rate, you know, about 50% of new foster parents last only uh, a year or less. So you've got, you've got this huge outflow. And by the way, it takes, it can take almost a year to get licensed to be a foster parent. Uh, so they, they've gone through all this investment and then, and then they leave. Uh, and some of the endemic issues as to why this is, uh, we're seeing this. Well, we went out and asked the community. We we run something called the Voice of the Community Survey. Uh, we just finished our second annual one, and um, uh, you know about. Th- 3,000 caregivers from across the country, about 7,000 transition age youth caregivers and frontline workers have responded. And what the caregivers had to say is they really, um, they don't feel valued. Now, remember, caregivers don't get paid. They volunteer and they don't feel valued. Uh, They don't feel that uh, they're seen as anything but a bed and a driver, uh, driving kids to their visitations or their doctor's appointments or to school or whatever. Um, They they don't feel respected. They don't get the training and support they need. They're not sure how to access the resources that their children need uh, or where to get them. Uh, And um, quite frankly, the stipend that they do get, which is supposed to invest in the child, is insufficient to meet the needs of that child. And Mm. so when you add all of that up and this feeling of they're already volunteering and they feel like they're not even a valued member of the team, their their voice isn't heard in decision making around the future of that child, even though they are principally responsible for the life of that child for the majority of the time that that child's in care. I, you can see how you how things can fester, and it becomes a very un uh, you know a, nobody wants to be part of something like this. Right. Okay. So so not enough support for families who wish to um, be foster families. We will come back to that in just in a couple of minutes. But caseworkers themselves, I'm seeing, are. Um, ex- feeling very overworked and, and burning out. Do you have some some data or stories around that? Yes, there too. You can see the same. I, I believe the turnover rate de- depends on the state is between 30 to 50 percent uh, on frontline workers. These are the ones that are, are out there in the field. Uh, so there too, huge caseloads, far exceeding what the uh, state or federal guidelines suggest should be their caseloads. Not only that, but their caseloads are moving and switching all the time. To give you a case example, in LA County, cases are done by uh, uh, social workers are given a region uh, that they operate in. So as kids move placements, as you heard uh, Enrique and and Jewel and Glenda talk about moving placements, and they move in and out of a social worker's area, 
that that social worker may have a steady state of cases, but the actual case keeps changing because the children keep changing. So you can just imagine the how can they possibly keep up? Um, mm. and, and they're under incredible pressure too because there's not enough homes. How do you think a social worker feels dr- keeping a kid in their office? Mm-hmm. It, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, you know, we reached out to several states that are experiencing these uh, critical shortage shortages of uh, foster homes. Um, and several of them, a couple of them did get back to us with, uh, with statements. One of them is Maryland. Um, and according to at least one data set in 2000, between 2021 to 2022, Maryland uh, lost 38% um, of its available or number of licensed foster homes in the state. And um, the state of Maryland responded to our inquiry with uh, quite a long statement, but a portion of it says that um, currently there are 3,911 children and teens in foster care. Um, and as of just this week, there are 2,000 640 licensed active resource homes in Maryland. Um, and they gave us a couple of reasons about why that, that that number has fluctuated in the past few years. And they point to what seems like an administrative reason that over the course of 2019 to 2021, the statement says, Maryland developed and launched the new child juvenile and adult management system to better support DHS child welfare and adult services employees. And during the transition period um, of to this new management system, they discovered and have since corrected programming issues with migrating the data from the state's old system to the new one, which resulted in some closed resource homes uh, being reopened in the system inadvertently. Now, um, I'm. I, what do you take from that, Sarita? A, a, a lot of bureaucratic information. <laughs> yes, um, yes. I... I yeah, it's a, it's a mess. Uh, I I mean, how, how do you not know which of your families? Uh, I, and this just goes to what caregivers are saying. Uh, you they're so low on the totem pole for being um, supported that that an administrative error could turn off families. Mm-hmm. The, that 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 it just underscores the value that is being placed on these caregivers who arguably are the biggest from a child centric point of view they are the most important piece of the child welfare system yeah there's another piece of this that I wanted to get your your uh, impressions on because again thinking about the reporting that's come out of Nevada um and some of the st- the tremendously acute need, especially in some of Nevada's rural counties. Um, Officials there, uh, again, told Kaiser Health News that um, there was already what made the the available number of foster families um, shrink dramatically there was actually larger problems in the community, higher poverty rates, greater geographical distances to services or even between communities, very limited infrastructure, fewer social workers in all. So the community itself was struggling, which meant that um, the number of foster families 
even if they had the desire to do so, simply couldn't. They couldn't support bringing another child into their home even temporarily. So it's like a reflection of bigger challenges in American life, don't you think? Uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, especially if you have built a system upon the backs of volunteers. Uh, what other system of care that do we have in the United States that is so dependent on volunteers? Uh, in healthcare, we have home health workers, we have senior care, we have pre-K and child care. All of those do not rely upon volunteers, yet the child welfare system does. And where are the majority of children coming into the foster care system from? Well, a, again, if we go back to the survey we, surveys we've been doing, uh, 78% of frontline workers said that the number one it reason that drove children into the foster care system in the first place was poverty. So that mm -hmm. means that children are coming from uh, communities like you just described about ELCO, uh, you know, poor communities, communities that are already struggling. And now we're saying as a child welfare system, we're flipping over to that exact same community and saying, yeah, you're struggling, but we're looking for volunteers. Will you sign mm -hmm. up and take another child into your home? Oh, and P.S., by the way, we're, we're not going to give you a stipend that's going to cover everything that that child completely needs, uh, nor are we going to uh, be able to give you all the supports and resources and, and everything else that you need uh, because we ourselves are are. Uh, you know, uh, we don't have enough social workers. We're under stress. We're, you know, uh, we're, we're, we don't have the capability to, to do that. And perhaps we don't value you that way either. Right. We're going to hear from a foster parent in just one minute here. But Sarita, I had one more question for you because you did, you, you said volunteer multiple times, but then you also mentioned correctly that stipends are paid to, uh, to foster families who, um, do care for for children in the system now that those stipends monthly stipends can vary wildly right I mean seeing as low as two hundred dollars a month in Utah to a thousand dollars a month in California um, but you're still making the argument that that is an inadequate amount to care for the children um, that the foster parents are taking foster families are taking in yes and to be clear um, it Foster parents aren't paid like a professional, right? Uh, and and um, uh, that's one thing caregivers have suggested is what if this was to be more of a profession? Uh, and we can talk about that. But um, it, it, this stipend is a somewhat of a compensation for the bed, you know, for the roof over their head. Um, and for the consumption of, um, of items that that child needs, whether it's clothing, food, uh, being driven to and from school or visitations or, or, or programming, um, uh, you, you know, uh, things like that. Um, so, so when you think about it, it, it's not a lot. It does go up based on the complexity of the 
the the trauma and the case that the, the that they are licensed to be able to have. So someone who uh, so a family who can uh, who is trained and can handle uh, very severe traumatic cases, uh, children who have been sexually abused, uh, children who have disabilities, uh, children with severe mental health issues. Uh, that obviously you need someone. Uh, much more uh, trained, uh, mm-hmm. and um, a- and they need much more supports than a child who doesn't need that. So that's why you see these varying in differences. Uh, but is it is it paid like one would see a home health worker being paid, or a senior care worker being paid, or a child care worker being paid? No, mm. it it, mm-hmm. it is not. Uh, and okay. maybe that's why it's not valued. Okay. Well, Sarita Cox, hang on here for just a minute because I want to bring in um, the voice of someone who uh, is a foster parent. John DeGarmo joins us from Monticello, Georgia. He's been a foster parent and adoptive parent of 60-plus children since 2001. He's also a foster care expert and advocate and the director of the Foster Care Institute. John DeGarmo, welcome to you. Thank you so very much. Can you take a minute first to talk about how many kids you fostered, their age ranges, when you started? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Started roughly 20 years ago. We've had over 60 plus children. We've had children as young as 27 hours of age and as old as 18 years of age. We averaged roughly nine children at a time. Several times we had uh, as many as 11 children at the same time, including seven in diapers. And there's a reason behind that. You know, we've been talking about the shortage of foster parents. And at the Foster Care Institute, we did a deep study on why that was. But, you know, in our area, there are simply not enough foster homes. And we have been asked several times to take well over the limit. Well over the limit. I read that at one point in time during one Christmas, were there 23 kids that came into your care? <laughs> well, we had 23 children. It was actually 2020, year of COVID. We opened up our house to a lot of our former kids that came through our home, and we had 23 kids join us during that holiday season um, that were in foster care in our home at one time. You know, in our home, there's no label. There's no biological or adoptive or foster. They're all of our children. We love them equally. Mm, okay. So these these were children that you had cared for before who, who came in for Christmas, uh, the Christmas of COVID. Okay. Point uh, point taken. I'm, I appreciate that clarification. What um, what drew you to become a foster parent in the first place? Well, there's a few reasons, and thanks for asking. Uh, initially, my wife's from Australia, and our child died in Australia from a condition called anencephaly, or some pronounce it anencephaly. And my wife was in labor for 92 hours, and, and I had a lot of, uh, had a lot of anger at that time. Uh, And then years later, we moved back to the United States and I was teaching in a rural system in Georgia. And two things hit me. The fact that many kids are coming through my high school classroom in this rural area that had issues of attendance, issues of behavior, issues of academics. And I noticed a lot of it was stemming from their household environment. And second of all, in this small rural county was a very, very large human trafficking ring led by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Malachi York. He was not a doctor, but that was his alias. He's now in jail for bringing over a 1,000 children over the uh, state lines of Georgia for child sex trafficking. And so I asked my wife, you know, we, we lost our first child. We have three healthy children at that point. How can we help other kids? And that led to the journey and adventure of foster parenting. 
Wow. Well, I'm very sorry to hear about your first child, um, but I'm grateful that you're joining us today, John. If you hang on for just a minute, I want to talk a lot more about the realities of being a foster parent and what can be done to change the system so that the number uh, of foster homes can grow in this country to meet the needs of children in the system. So we'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the crisis in the foster care system that's really burst out into the open, because over the last couple of years, at least half, I should actually say more than half of U.S. states have experienced a dramatic drop in the number of licensed foster homes in each of these various states. And today we're exploring why and what can be done about it. Sarita Cox joins us. She's CEO and founder of the nonprofit iFoster. And John DeGarmo is with us as well. He's been a foster parent uh, since 2001 and is the director of the Foster Care Institute. Um, And I just want I want to hear for a moment from another uh, person who was formerly in the foster care system. And because we talked a, a few minutes ago about the fact that half of foster parents don't last a single year or, or they exit the system as available foster families after just one year. And one of the things that means immediately is that children get bounced around from home to home. That was definitely the case for 25-year-old Michaela Reinhardt of North Carolina. She entered the foster care system when she was nine due to uh, drug abuse and trafficking in her um, biological home. And since then, she's been in more than 15 foster homes. I've had to sit down and actually write out like the people I've lived with, like all of their names. And... It's crazy because I I had this list in front of me for like a week and I would just be like, oh, I forgot this person. Oh, I forgot this person. And so when I ended up coming to peace with like everyone I had wrote down, I had wrote down 23 different families who had cared for me during the time I was in foster care. And so I ended up in over seven different schools before I graduated And um, I lived about two hours away at one point from, you know, like my community or the people that I'd known since like elementary school. And a lot of my friends would say, you know, one day you would just go missing and nobody knew where you were. That was exactly how it was. Like my friends, one day I'd be at school and the next day my friends wouldn't ever see me again and I would never see them again until years later. 
it's quite a, an experience to wrap your your mind around being a child in foster care. It's it's a tornado constantly. Your life is a tornado. Now, Michaela says she's glad that she was initially removed from her mother's home. She does know it wasn't safe for her there. But the instability that she experienced afterwards really took a toll on her, and she doesn't want other children to have to go through that, which is why today she's a family recruitment specialist for the Children's Home Society of North Carolina. Um, John, I'm wondering if I can ask you about what the the you think the primary challenges are for families in their first year of wanting to foster children, um, what those challenges are, and whether or not in the training period um, that they go through with various states, if they're really adequately prepared for them um, uh, by by the, um, the the child services that that train the families. No, that's a fantastic question. You know, I recognize within 20 minutes of my first placement that I was not ready for the two children placed in my home. My wife and I thought we were ready, but we recognized within the first 20 minutes that wasn't the case. And that's the case for so many foster parents. You know, we did a study at the Foster Care Institute, and we asked over 5,000 foster parents, what's the number one reason why you are quitting after roughly 18 months? And by far, the response was, Foster parents felt that they did not get the help they needed during times of burnout, stress, during times of secondary traumatic stress or known as compassion fatigue, during times of feelings of grief and loss when a child leaves. They felt they weren't getting the support from their caseworkers. In truth, caseworkers are overworked, overwhelmed, under-resourced, under-supported, understaffed, and underpaid. And as we discussed here earlier, they quit as well. So it's a very challenging time. And then during COVID, what I was hearing from foster parents was when a child was removed, when a child, when we closed the schools down and the child was placed back into the foster care home, they were no longer getting their support services they needed in school because they were on, on average 18 months behind academically with issues of behavior and academics. They were no longer getting the professional therapy or counseling services that they desperately needed. They were no longer getting in-person visitation services and their anxiety levels were through the roof. Well, foster parents were telling me, Dr. John, I'm not a teacher. I can't help these kids with their academics. I'm not a therapist or counselor. I can't do visitations online five days a week. And their anxiety levels are through the roof. And that's one of the reasons why we lost so many good foster parents during 2020 and 2021. They just weren't getting the help they needed. And the children were in their homes 24 hours a day without any sort of help. Uh, okay. Sarita Cox, um, you know, one might think, well, perhaps uh, the community around uh, where these foster families live could step up more, right? I mean, offers to babysit, carpooling, you know, assistance with laundry, whatever it takes, you know, the things that uh, friends and neighbors do for each other on an everyday basis. But I'm reading, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that in some states, like, for example, if a foster parent just needed a little bit of, uh, you know, of a break from things and wanted to have a babysitter come in and look after the kids, that that babysitter would also have to be certified as a, as a person who's able to give foster care by by that state. And so that maybe reduced the options that the, the foster parent has. Do I have that right or, or am I mistaken there? 
No, you are correct. It depends state by state, county by county. Uh, but it, it, yes, you, you can't just have, let's say, a teenage babysitter come over. Uh, it, it's what you, in, uh, you'll hear uh, termed as respite care, caregivers being asked for respite care. Um, and that's just my apologies. My dog's. That's part. okay. Do, do you know? I'm, I'll let you take care. I'll I'll let you take care of that for a second. I'll I'll give you a respite from the radio program for just a second, and I'll turn back to John. John, did you want to fill in um, more on that? About are there limitations on the kinds of assistance that a foster family can seek while they're caring for the children um, in their homes? That is correct. My wife and I actually went six years without a date because we could not find somebody who was licensed through the child welfare agency for respite care. There was no respite families available for us. We could not get a babysitter at that time. And and that's true. That's that's one of the challenges that foster parents face. And, and you know, you mentioned about the community. There's, you know, and not everybody can be a foster parent. To me, it's the hardest thing I've done. It's been the most rewarding thing I've done, but it's it's so challenging lifestyle. But everybody can help a child in crisis and a foster family in some way. You know, when you have roughly 465,000 children in foster care, that means there's a child in crisis in every single community in our nation. Mm. Well, uh, let me just uh, play another bit of tape here because I want to move now towards talking a little bit about um, not just sort of local solutions that can, um, that we need to, that we need to turn to in order to improve this situation, but maybe even statewide and, and at the federal level. So we spoke with John Connery. He's the director of recruitment at the South Carolina Youth Advocate Program. It's a nonprofit that helps place foster children with families. Uh, and recall, South Carolina has had that 60% drop in available foster homes from 2021 to 2022. Um, Now, John's group has been around for more than 30 years. They've had some families who've been fostering kids with them for that entire time. And they also have more than 100 families who've been fostering with them for at least 10 years. And the reason why John says they have a more remarkable retention rate is that these families feel supported. We do everything possible to support the families and the children they're fostering as much as possible. So these folks feel like they've got, they're part of the professional team and they have the support necessary to do what they're doing to take care of these foster kids. We have two mental health clinics that we operate. We have offices around the states, one in Columbia and one in Charleston. Uh, We have psychiatrists, licensed therapists. We do telehealth with the families and kids so they don't have to travel if they live, you know, too far away somewhere else in the state. We have um, no answering machine. So if a family needs us at two o'clock in the morning and they call, they get a live person and get connected to the staff person that's assigned to that family. So that that's a big part of, of our operation is the support that we provide. So that's John Connery in South Carolina. Sarita Cox, um, how might we get more of the kind of services that that John and his group provide to families uh, into into more states? I think what uh, John just described is fantastic and is exactly what's needed. Uh, but uh, let's be frank that that 
costs money. Uh, and uh, I think a replication of that in other states would be wonderful and needed. Uh, but uh, what what is that investment going to take to, to enable that when what we're dealing with where we are right now is we're bleeding uh uh, not just on the caregiver side, but on the social worker side as well. And so if, we, if we're if we having the churn on the social worker side, they're overburdened. Uh, how do we get to a state uh, that he described where you could be, ha- uh, could have live help 24 hours a day. You could be, uh, have less you know, so de-stressed that you could actually take on whatever is coming at you uh, in terms of, oh, uh, 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 better supporting what caregivers need. Thinking far enough ahead to say, yes, let's put in place telehealth so people that don't need to travel, what are the policies and procedures we need to put in in our county, in our state to enable that? Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, I think I think they're, it's a fantastic idea, but it needs plans and implementations and funding. Right. So, you know, again, we uh, reached out to several states for comment. Um, and Cal- I, I, I read a statement from Maryland before, and California also sent us a really long statement uh, describing all the uh, <laughs> investments. You're laughing, but they described all the investments they've, they say they've made uh, to improve the foster care system there. And it seems there's quite a bit of money that goes along with it. $43 million to counties through what they call the Complex Care Capacity uh, Building System, $18 million in ongoing funding to support urgent needs for uh, youth with complex needs, $61 millions to counties and programs for uh, pro- uh, uh, a program called the Children's Crisis Continuum Pilot, $224 million to support uh, implementation of prevention plans, and $2.2 billion in facility infrastructure through the Behavioral Health Continuum Infrastructure Program. That's just some of what California says it's invested. Now, very briefly, Sarita, um, that's a lot of money, but are you, are you saying that yes. perhaps it's not all going to the right places? I, I, yes. So yes, you're right. That is a lot. That that that's a staggering sum. Now let's also be clear: California has more kids in foster care than the next five states combined. Uh, we we have somewhere around uh, closing in close somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand children in in foster care on any given day. Um, I think the the bigger issue or the macro issue, and and you heard the young people at the beginning of the, the, the segment talk about this, is the child welfare system is not child-centric. It's not built around the child. And I think this is why you're hearing from caregivers uh, that they're not getting the support. You're hearing from, from the youth themselves that if the system itself was structured to be around be more child-centric, maybe where money flows would look different. Okay, so that's an excellent... Yeah, that's an excellent point because it takes my mind back to something you said earlier, right? That many of these children um, obviously need to be removed from their homes because they are in dangerous situations, but a lot of them end up getting removed from their homes not because anything is going wrong with the families themselves, but because of poverty. So on that point, I want to hear from one more 
young person who's been in the foster care system. This is Brittany Yates. She's 24 now. She's from Kentucky. She spent nine years in and out of the foster care system, starting when she was 12. And she says her mother worked two jobs, but still struggled to provide for her three children. There was no abuse, neglect, or drug abuse in the home. The family was simply poor. I ended up couch surfing for about eight months before they found me and moved me an hour away and threw me into foster care. That placement was shut down very quickly for drug abuse. And I was moved into another house that had seven other children in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom home. It ended up getting shut down for physical and sexual abuse. I bounced around to about 17 different homes through my time in foster care. And I feel like the services offered to my foster parents a monthly stipend to get her clothes, to get her toiletries. Here's reimbursement for gas mileage, you know, taking her to and from doctor's appointments that, that should have been offered to my mother. So I wouldn't have to get removed. And then that would have saved me a literal lifetime of trauma. John, we've only got a minute left here, but this is such a compelling and important point to dis- to discuss. Do you think that there's a case to be made that for many families, instead of removing the child from the home, that the stipend that would have gone into the foster to a foster home could potentially go to to the parents who are struggling just to make ends meet? Absolutely. Two of the three I've adopted are third generation foster care, which means their parents and grandparents were also in the system and they never got the help they needed when they were children. We're facing the real pandemic, I believe, now is mental health for our children. 70% increase in teenage suicide attempts in girls, teenage depression, teenage anxiety. These children need support. These families need support before they're removed from their families. It's a very traumatic experience being removed from home and being placed into a foster care home. Foster parents can provide tremendous stability, structure, consistency, unconditional love, but it's a time of trauma and anxiety being placed into my home because I'm a stranger. Mm. Well, so we've heard this hour, making the system more child-centric, providing significantly more supports to foster families, and of course, doing something about the underlying poverty that makes life so challenging for so many parents and children in this country. Well, John DeGarmo, director of the Foster Care Institute, who's been fostering children since 2001, thank you so much for joining us, John. Thank you. And Sarita Cox, CEO and co-founder of the nonprofit iFoster. Sarita, I'm very grateful you could join us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>